Hey folks, and welcome to our 11th SFD short. This is an essay that I've been thinking about for a long time, and one that's especially important to the US now, versus most of the stuff I get into, which is locked in the past. Remember, help me out, share the show, and check out the news and analysis cast that's up at patreon.com slash democracy. For now, let's abolish the army. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. So I want to get rid of the military, for the most part. I want to do it for five reasons. First, a large standing army has been understood to be dangerous to republics and democracy in general since classical times. Second, the Founding Fathers warned us against creating one, and until 1946, they were unprecedented in U.S. history. Third, the current size and configuration of our military hurts our politics at home. Fourth, it hurts our security abroad. And fifth, because a smaller military would serve both our defense and our democracy better. Way back, when the Romans were still around and the Roman Empire was still a republic, there was a man named Gaius Marius, and Marius realized a solution to a problem that Rome itself was just beginning to grasp. You see, Roman government and institutions had been set up for the maintenance and defense of a city-state, but Rome had since grown to be a major power, dominating southern Europe and the Mediterranean world. And leaving government aside, the military problem that they were running into was a lack of quality troops. Under its original laws, only citizens could serve in the Roman legions, and those citizens had to supply their own gear—swords, spears, shields, and armor—out of their own pocket. 
or they had to be equipped en masse by some wealthy aristocrat. And because of a confluence of factors, Rome was running out of citizens who were wealthy enough to serve the growing needs of a burgeoning empire. Not only that, but the ad hoc nature of the legions in the Republican period was hampering Rome's ability to make war. Armies were called up for particular campaigns out of the mass of eligible citizens, and at the outset of any given war, they were little better than a militia. They reached their greatest fighting effectiveness at the end of the fighting for which they'd been called up, and then they were disbanded again. It was a poor way to organize an army for an empire that was finding itself constantly at war on the far-flung frontiers. So Gaius Marius devised a solution. His army reforms, which are part of a larger group of reforms that maybe didn't have so much to do with him, but maybe had something to do with what the state was doing anyway, his army reforms opened up auxiliary positions in the legions to non-citizens and passed the costs of training and equipping the legionaries onto the state. The burden of paying for defense fell upon everyone in the empire, citizen or no, and state control of equipment allowed for standardization and economies of scale and production, which is where we get those magnificently uniform-looking legions that you imagine when you think of Rome. Likewise, by opening the ranks to citizens who couldn't pay for a pair of sandals, let alone the panoply of war, and by offering land grants, usually in captured territory, as a kind of pension for soldiers who served a life term in the army, Marius helped to reduce and to put to use the masses of the poor in Rome. It was an incredibly effective solution, and it led, within a couple of generations, to the destruction of the Roman Republic. Legions kept permanently under arms and rewarded out of their conquests developed tighter loyalties to their generals than to the state, as their booty and their retirement packages came to depend more and more on the success of those commanders in battle. There are a lot of other factors, and you can go to Dan Carlin's newest hardcore history or his older ones about the fall of the Republic for those, but soon enough, armies became the political instruments of Rome's politician generals, and before long you were looking at triumvirates, civil wars, crossings of the Rubicon, and Augustus Caesar kicking off the empire. The dangers that standing professional armies posed to the stability of Republican governments was a long-held truth for classical scholars, and when classical scholarship resurfaced in the Renaissance, their opinion continued to be the guiding one. Our own founding fathers fell strongly on the side of opposing these kinds of forces, what T.R. Fehrenbach in my show from a few weeks ago also called legions. In fact, much of what the founders saw as laudable in the English state, the monarchy from which they'd broken away, was its subordination of the military to the legislature, and the prevention thereby of the maintenance of large professional forces during peacetime. From Federalist No. 26, written by Hamilton, quote, In England, for a long time after the Norman Conquest, the authority of the monarch was almost unlimited. Inroads were gradually made upon the prerogative, in favor of liberty, first by the barons, and afterwards by the people, till the greatest part of its most formidable pretensions became extinct. But it was not until the revolution in 1688, which elevated the Prince of Orange to the throne of Great Britain, that English liberty was completely triumphant. As incident to the undefined power of making war, an acknowledged prerogative of the crown, Charles II, had, by his own authority, kept on foot in time of peace a body of 5,000 regular troops. And this number, James II, increased to 30,000, who were paid out of his civil list. At the revolution, to abolish the exercise of so dangerous an authority, it became an article of the Bill of Rights, then framed, that the raising or keeping of a standing army within the kingdom in time of peace, unless with the consent of Parliament, was against the law. From that same source, the people of America may be said to have derived a hereditary impression of danger to liberty, 
from standing armies in time of peace, unquote. Both Washington in his farewell address and Jefferson in his first inaugural voiced the same perspective. From old Georgie, quote, Hence, likewise, they will avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments which, under any form of government, are inauspicious to liberty, and which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to republican liberty. In this sense it is that your union ought to be considered as a main prop of your liberty, and the love of one ought to endear you to the preservation of the other." Unquote. And from Jefferson, describing some of the pillars of American democracy, quote, "...equal and exact justice to all men, of whatever state or persuasion, religious or political, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none, a well-disciplined militia, our best reliance in peace, and for the first moments of war till regulars may relieve them." Unquote. And while it might be hard to see these days, the American military for most of our history operated along the lines that those guys laid out two and a half centuries ago or so. Until the end of the Second World War, or maybe more accurately until the end of the Korean conflict, the U.S. armed forces in peacetime were restricted to a small, well-regulated body of officers and NCOs who could, when a major war called the citizenry at large to arms, train up an army of regulars. Hamilton, again from Federalist Number 26, imagined that keeping the legislature in control of the raising and funding of the regular army would be enough to keep it from growing too large or from staying large in times of peace. Quote, the legislature of the United States will be obliged by this provision once at least in every two years to deliberate upon the propriety of keeping a military force on foot. He's talking about the Constitution here. To come to a new resolution on the point and to declare their sense of the matter by a formal vote in the face of their constituents. They are not at liberty to vest in the executive department, the president, permanent funds for the support of an army, if they were even incautious enough to be willing to repose it in so improper a confidence. The provision for the support of a military force will always be a favorable topic for declamation, that is that they'll debate it in the Congress whenever this vote comes up. As often as the question comes forward, the public attention will be roused and attracted to the subject by the party in opposition. And if the majority should really be disposed to exceed the proper limits, the community will be warned of the danger and will have an opportunity of taking measures to guard against it. That is, that the public, even if the Congress tries to invest the president with a permanent military force, will uh, stand up and oppose that. Continuing, an army so large as seriously to menace those liberties could only be formed by progressive augmentations, which would suppose not merely a temporary combination between the legislature and executive, but a continued conspiracy for a series of time. Is it probable that such a combination would exist at all? Is it probable that it would be persevered in and transmitted along through all the successive variations in a representative body which biennial elections would naturally produce in both houses? Is it presumable that every man, the instant he took a seat in the National Senate or House of Representatives, would commence to be a traitor to his constituents and to his country? Can it be supposed that there would not be found one man discerning enough to detect so atrocious a conspiracy or bold and honest enough to apprise his constituents of their danger? It has been said that the provision which limits the appropriation of money for the support of an army to the period of two years would be unavailing, because the executive, when once possessed of a force large enough to awe the people into submission, would find resources in that very force sufficient to enable him to dispense with supplies from the acts of the legislature. But the question again recurs, upon what pretense could he be put in possession of a force of that magnitude in time of peace? Unquote. But what Hamilton and the rest of the Founding Fathers did not and could not anticipate was that the major American parties would band together in favor of a large standing army, the conspiracy that he mentions, in the context of the Cold War, the pretense that one could use to be, quote, put in possession of a force of that magnitude in time of peace, unquote. 
While both Truman and Eisenhower had formulated their Cold War strategies around the notion of limited resources, and therefore restricted their military expenditures, that would not be the case under their successors. Kennedy and Johnson became enamored of a strategy known as symmetrical response, one in which we would try to meet the Soviets anywhere and on any terms. So while Eisenhower largely relied on our nuclear arsenal as a deterrent, Kennedy began the buildup of traditional ground forces, meant to match the huge number of Soviet divisions in Eastern Europe that never really tailed off, and which has given us the military we have today. Eisenhower, in his farewell address, famously warned us of the dangers that our new buildup would present to the country. Quote, we now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend, not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interests of world peace and human betterment. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known by any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together." Unquote. But almost as soon as Ike was done speaking, we as a people forgot what he'd said and forgot to worry about and to safeguard against the further buildup of that military-industrial complex and the influence that it would push into our politics. Our buildup and maintenance of a force designed for the two and a half wars that Kennedy and McNamara imagined necessarily led to the military-industrial complex and all of the negative effects that Eisenhower mentioned in his address. While I think we're still some ways away from a Roman-style breakdown of government in favor of the generals, Kelly and Mattis and McMaster in the White House notwithstanding, I think it's more than fair to say that our military is bad for us and bad for our politics here at home. In the first place, there's spending. President Johnson once said that, quote, I want to be the president who educated young people to the wonders of their world. I want to be the president who helped to feed the hungry and to prepare them to be taxpayers instead of tax eaters. I want to be the president who helped the poor to find their own way and who protected the right of every citizen to vote in every election. I want to be the president who helped to end hatred among his fellow men and who promoted love among the people of all races and all religions and all parties. I want to be the president who helped to end war among the brothers of this earth." Unquote. Johnson did not become that president because of commitments he'd made to the war in Vietnam, and we've never seen another slate of programs like the Great Society, in part because we devote upwards of 50% of discretionary spending every year to defense, more than the next 11 countries combined, and more as a proportion of GDP 
that nearly everyone but the Russians, the Saudis, and a handful of other states we definitely don't want to be emulating. Some of that spending is not just expedient, but necessary, like the upkeep our nuclear arsenal needs to avoid becoming a danger in its silos. Some of it is unavoidable due to the structure of the military as is. Close to 800 bases abroad need to be maintained and paid for. And the same goes for the 1.2 million men we have under arms, and the 800,000 in the reserves. But some of our spending, like the $1.45 trillion we're projected to end up plowing into the new F-35, a total boondoggle of a jet plane, has been wasted in the most profligate way. Now, the reason those projects get funded, and the reason they keep happening, has to do with that military-industrial complex and its effects on our politics. The production of new weapon systems, from rifles on through to nuclear missiles, is usually distributed among different states and congressional districts, so that they work as handouts to multiple congressmen and senators, and so that then closing or drawing down on those programs becomes politically impossible. The company's being paid exorbitant sums not just to supply the U.S. military, but to keep it ahead on any possible technological advance, even those, like sonic weapons, that won't ever get used in a meaningful way, put those sums to work funding prodigious lobbying efforts in D.C. that keep the money flowing. Likewise, the rotation of Pentagon staff into military contractors and their lobbying arms means that often enough it's somebody's former boss or colleague at the Pentagon who comes to the Pentagon to bid on new contracts. And their efforts have paid off. Private contractors make up only 22% of the Defense Department's workforce, but they account for over 50% of its payroll. Private companies now carry out much or most of the work of base maintenance abroad, and it's become a wildly profitable activity. From an article in Salon in 2013, quote, In addition, Pentagon spending on its base world has been marked by spiraling expenditures, the growing use of uncompetitive contracts, and contract lacking incentives to control costs, outright fraud, and the repeated awarding of non-competitive sweetheart contracts to companies with histories of fraud and abuse. There's been so much cost gouging that any attempt to catalog it across bases globally would be a mammoth effort. The 31 to $60 billion in contracting fraud in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars alone, as calculated by the Commission on Wartime Contracting, which Congress established to investigate waste and abuse, suggests the global total could be astronomical." Unquote. David Vine, the author of that piece, says that it would be a mammoth effort even to begin investigating because the DoD, with the help of its contract employees, works to keep this huge second economy opaque. Which means that while you sign away a hefty portion of your taxes every year to Northrop Grumman and Bechtel and Halliburton, you'll never know or be able to control where it ends up or how it gets used. And it likewise means that while you might feel good about military spending because it's going to our boys in uniform, the fact is that some, and maybe most of it's, actually going to line the pockets of guys like Dick Cheney. And you have to believe that these dudes walk the corridors of power. For one example, besides old Dick, You've got Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater. He was big on the behind-the-closed-doors side of Republican politics back when he was still the owner of that organization. And Blackwater, his private army company, funded almost entirely by the U.S. government, got the contracts for private security and base building, along with Cheney's Halliburton, in Iraq. Right now, Prince is very chummy with Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka, who were reportedly all for juicing the Afghan occupation with private military contractors like Blackwater. I recognize that Blackwater is no longer named Blackwater, and that it's gone through a couple of different iterations, and that now it's owned by some consortium, but when you let these people change their names and thus obscure what they're doing, you're letting them win. So let's just call Blackwater Blackwater. 
Anyway, Prince's sister Betsy DeVos is a cabinet secretary, and Prince was just revealed to be under investigation for both trying to set up a secret back channel between Trump and Putin at a meeting in the Seychelles, and, according to The Intercept, for, quote, attempting to broker military services to foreign governments, including China and Algeria, and possible money laundering, unquote. In the shadier parts of the military contracting world, Eric Prince isn't an exception, but the rule. When you worry about the deep state, it shouldn't be about people in the State Department trying to keep our diplomatic corps on track, but these guys. These guys who manage a huge amount of government spending, and, thus, policy, away from the eyes of the public. And, to reiterate from the beginning of the section, there's just a lot that we could do with that cash with more return on investment than giving it to Blackwater. Talking about the failure of the United States' defeat, with a, quote, 1,000 to 1 superiority in firepower, a small nation in over-warfare, unquote, in Vietnam, Hannah Arendt wrote this in Crises of the Republic. Quote, Even if one anticipates the judgment of future historians who might see this development in the context of 20th century history, when the defeated nations in two world wars managed to come out on top in competition with the victors, chiefly because they were compelled by the victors to rid themselves for a relatively long period, of the incredible wastefulness of armaments and military expenses, it remains hard to reconcile oneself to so much effort wasted on demonstrating the impotence of bigness." Unquote. All of that preceding talk might, to the military boosters among you, still fall on deaf ears. It could all be called the inevitable consequence of our large needs for national defense and our role as a world peacekeeper, as distasteful as it all might be. And to a point I understand that position. Or I would, except that the very size and makeup of our military right now, and its force structure, actively harm our interests abroad and our security at home. Consider just for a second that in the grand scheme of things, the military that we have, and the way that it's stationed all over the world, are weird. For the whole history of the Republic, we counted ourselves lucky to be isolated on the east and west by two oceans, and abutted on the north and south by two largely peaceable neighbors. We were lucky because we could avoid the expense and the danger of a large military maintained even during peacetime for national defense. And we built up our current massive forces not for that traditional notion of defense of the borders, but to confront the large forces of what we saw as an existential threat not just to us, but to the world in general, which was the Soviet Union. We saw the USSR that way not because of the large Russian Empire, but because specifically of the Soviet communist ideology. And that threat no longer exists. For all of Putin's warmongering, Russia's military is weak. So all those forward deployments, the hundreds of bases in Germany and Japan and the Philippines, they're not just outdated, but out of place. They're the structure of a strategy that we're no longer using, poised to confront an enemy that we're no longer fighting. And what they give us the ability to do, along with the two million men that we can call up, is to use them. The invasion of Iraq, we have since learned, wasn't the product of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction or of his involvement in the attacks on 9-11. The invasion of Iraq was simply the product of being able to invade, of having the men and the bases in Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the ability to deploy huge reserves at will from back home and around the world. The military burns a big old hole in the pocket of every new president, and some, like Bush, have more problems than others in refraining from using it. What Donald Trump is doing right now is only the culmination of a long-running trend in American politics. When he guts the State Department and keeps Rex Tillerson in the dark when he goes on to make military threats towards Iran, 
Trump's only the latest in a long line. It's an obvious thing, but if you've got a hammer and some other tools, and you keep buying bigger and bigger hammers while you throw away more and more of those other tools, yeah, everything begins to look like really easily drivable nails. Now, I talked in my short show, American Legions, about T.R. Fehrenbach's concept of legions and how they relate to our foreign policy. And what I said was that now that we have the legions that Fehrenbach envisioned, our modern, volunteer-standing, very professional military, we could go on to be a bigger and better Roman or British empire. The size and incredible power of our armed forces as they now stand make us capable of unseating any regime on Earth and replacing it with one well-disposed towards us. We could have done it in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we could still do it there. We could do it in Syria. All that we would have to do, instead of trying to build up democracies in those places, would be to turn them into colonies, occupy them permanently, and fill them up with American citizens. And when the natives got unruly, none of this counterinsurgency stuff, mass deportations, mass migration from the U.S., massacres, and pogroms. We'd have it licked in a day. The problem, of course, is that we don't want that. We don't want colonies, and we don't want the violence and injustice and moral national stains that come with them. And if we know that we don't want the second half of colonization, we may have to reckon with the fact that our military is set up to prosecute the first half, every bit as much as the Roman legions or the British redcoats were. First, we have to recognize that modern warfare is fought not against states, but non-state actors, like terrorist groups and uncomfortable hybrids like ISIS. And second, we have to realize that while China and some other countries may have large militaries, they are still, in spending terms, way smaller than ours. That they belong, even in China's case, to our economic partners, and sometimes to our allies. And that in the end, the nukes are still keeping the large peace between nations, the same as they were through the Cold War. And if all of that is the case, then a large standing army, distributed in bases all over the world, and especially in conflict regions, has to be the worst possible tool for fighting modern warfare. The lesson we should have taken home from the aftermath in Iraq, or even earlier, the aftermath of the Soviets in Afghanistan, or even earlier, U.S. troops in Lebanon, is that the presence of a large foreign military force is itself what provokes radicalization and the motivation to participate in terrorist movements. Just or unjust, if you ask the 9-11 hijackers what they were so angry at the United States about, they'd tell you that it was U.S. involvement in the Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia. They'd tell you it was the U.S.'s unwavering support for Israel, which, whatever your feelings there, is and has been, in their eyes, oppressing and committing atrocities against their fellow Arabs in Palestine since 1946. The long and the short is that no matter how many troops you deploy, and in fact the more troops that you deploy, the more terrorists and freedom fighters that you'll have on your hands in the end, unless and until you're willing to start a colony and go all the way. Even if you, the grand strategist, more or less know what's going on, regular troops are a bad tool. This is a passage from Francis Fitzgerald's Fire in the Lake about Vietnam that would apply almost as well to Iraq and Afghanistan, or, God forbid, Syria or Iran. Quote, For the Americans to discern the enemy within the world of the Vietnamese village was to attempt to make out figures within a landscape indefinite and vague, underwater as it were. Landing from helicopters in a village controlled by the National Liberation Front, the soldiers would at first see nothing, having no criteria with which to judge what they saw. As they searched the village, they would find only old men, women, and children, a collection of wooden tools whose purpose they did not know, altars with scrolls and Chinese characters, paths that led nowhere, an economy, a geography, an architecture totally alien to them. 
searching for booby traps and enemy supplies that would find only the matting over a root cellar and the great stone jars of rice. Clumsy as astronauts, they would bend under the eaves of the huts, knock over cooking pots, and poke about at the smooth earth floor with their bayonets. How should they know whether the great stone jars held a year's supply of rice for the family, or a week's supply for a company of troops?" Unquote. American deployment to war zones, again, just or unjust, tends to provoke, rather than restrain, the growth and operation of terrorist groups and other non-state actors, and it tends to direct their ire our way. Likewise, even the troops we deploy to bases abroad can stir up opinion against us, not just in the Middle East, but in the Philippines and Germany and Korea and anywhere we decide to station a large body of amped-up young men and women. We'd have as much trouble if the U.S. government was stationing thousands of fraternity and sorority brothers and sisters on an official basis abroad. So if, in the modern world, what we mostly have to worry about are terrorists and freedom fighters halfway around the globe, and if deploying our large standing army to those places is the best way to improve those groups' recruitment and to get them to target us, then I think we have to come around to considering that apart from all of its historical problems, apart from the way it distorts our politics, and apart from all the money that we spend on it that we might put elsewhere, our military as currently devised and deployed actually decreases rather than increases our security. It's doing the exact opposite of what an army is supposed to do. So let's go back to an earlier model. If you ask me what we could do tomorrow to start rectifying the situation, there are some immediate changes that we could make. Close the bases abroad, every single one. Every American man or woman who's on the ground in a country we're not at war with, bring them home. Then you want to work on reducing troop levels, no joke, to pre-World War II levels. Tiny, elite, unfit to fight two and a half wars under any circumstances. At the same time, bring up, somewhat, the levels of more flexible and super professional bodies. The Marine Corps, Delta, Special Forces, the Airborne, etc. And likewise, bulk up the Navy just a little bit. Because what we want to do is roll back the paradigm, move to the model we had before we became the world's policemen. We want a hard core of officers and NCOs at all times who can keep training and replacing themselves, who can provide training to friendly governments, and who can, if a real war is on and the government blows the trumpet, as Fehrenbach writes, to train up a citizen army equal to the task. Quote, Before 1939, the U.S. Army was small, but it was professional. Its tiny officer corps was parochial, but true. Its members devoted their time to the study of war, caring little what went on in the larger society around them. They were centurions, and the society around them was not their concern. When so ordered, they went to war. Spreading themselves thinner still, they commanded and trained the civilians who heeded the trumpet's call. The civilians did the fighting, of course, but they did it the army's way." Unquote. I think, as Rob Morris does, that sometimes it might be handy for us to be able to put our finger on the scales of international politics to station a carrier task force off of somebody's coast and exert a little bit of pressure, a little bit of tension. But I think the ability of the president, currently, to ramp up that tension to invasion and occupation at will, or under the long-standing AUMF from the Congress, is directly responsible for Iraq and Vietnam and a dozen other little dirty conflicts besides. Moreover, without large numbers of troops stationed around the world, allies of ours that have used the umbrella of our military to be more aggressive than we would want like Israel with the Palestinians in the Arab world, and Japan and Taiwan, both with China, would have to resort to diplomacy rather than saber-rattling and threatening to involve us, the United States, in a general war. 
I want, in other words, a military that, while it can project force through the sea and the air, is incapable, by design, of massive land invasions at the drop of a hat. That would make us unable to react to events in the world, you might say. Well, no. We could either react in a limited way, focusing on diplomacy, or turn things into a real war. And that policy would have kept 5,000 of our men, 200,000 Iraqi civilians, and everyone who's died as the result of the rise of ISIS alive. What if it does come to a general war then? Well, this is the real beauty of the new old model. If the president doesn't have a standing army at his fingertips, he has to raise one. And to raise one, he has to convince the American people that the fight is worth fighting. Which would mean it would have been tough to get into Iraq. The lies that the Bush administration spun out were enough for the Congress, for a couple of months. But they would not have been enough to raise a million ordinary men and women. Even further back, it's hard to imagine millions of Americans volunteering to go to Vietnam if they'd been given the choice, and if the government had sold that war on its confused and arbitrary merits. The Founding Fathers and generations of political philosophers saw in democracy a great advantage. One that nowadays, as we consider our allies' contributions to NATO and their unwillingness to join our military coalitions, we tend to see as a disadvantage. And that was that it's difficult for democracies to go to war. It's tough to sell an entire people on the idea that it needs to put aside the comforts of peacetime for the hardships of war. Difficult to convince a democratic people that it needs to don the uniform to rob, with violence, the lives and livelihoods of another people. The existence of a standing army in the U.S. has made that all too easy over the last 80 years, and time and again it's been put into the field without anything like a national consensus. Shrinking our military would save us money. It would help to heal our politics at home. It would build goodwill abroad and make us more secure. But maybe most of all, it would make the process democratic again and put the war-making capability of this nation, of the people, back into the hands of that same people. And they, I think, would be more careful in using it than the men in office have ever been. And that is a good thing. I'm John Coombs, and this could make the U.S. safer for democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.